go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, joy, unspeakable joy, it rises in our soul. Lord, not just this time of the year at Christmas, but that should be the plight of every born-again believer every day, just rising to a new day, saying, Lord, we have joy because of the life that you have given us. Lord, we just give you praise and give you honor today. And Lord, help us to sing and, and just celebrate, uh, Lord, with the joy that you have put in us because of your great Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, let me see if I can find... There it is. The uh, connection card, this little white card in the pew back in front of you, please grab that and uh, fill that out, especially if you're with us maybe for the first or second time. We'd love to know who you are and how we can minister to you. Uh, there's an opportunity to have a prayer request or comment on the back, opportunity to ask the church a, a question, and we'd be happy to get back with you. What does it mean to have a relationship with Christ? What does it mean to join a church? Uh, all those type of things you can ask, and we'll be happy to respond to you. So please fill that out and put that in the offering plate. Uh, let me say just a, a couple of things that weren't planned, but, but you need to know. Uh, upcoming for uh, December, next Sunday night at 5.30, the 13th at 5.30, we, we will have our uh, annual budget meeting for 2021. We'll roll out the 2021 budget and other church uh, business that needs to be addressed. And so please, we want every member to be at those meetings. So that's 530 next Sunday night. The following Sunday night, the 20th, also at 530, we're having a special uh, Lord's Supper service, okay, Christmas Lord's Supper service. The children's choir will be singing, adult choir and orchestra will be singing. Uh, there'll be no child care that night, so we'll keep it family-oriented, we'll keep it brief. It'll be about 35 or 40 minutes celebration that will center around the Lord's Supper. So please, we invite all, all of our church family to be here for that. And then something new this year, Wednesday night before Christmas, the 23rd, um, there may be some of you out there who we started that opening song, Joy, Unspeakable Joy, and you're going, hmm, that's hard for me to do right now because you've experienced a terrible loss this year. We want to, um, uh, a loss in your family, a loss of a loved one, um, or any other loss for that matter, but uh, we just want to provide a special service for you. You won't be asked to sing Deck the Halls and Joy to the World. You'll just be asked to come and be ministered to, and we'll pray for you and, and encourage you. And so that, that service is sort of designed for those who are in a sort of a, a spirit of, of sorrow and grieving this time of year, and, and we just want to offer a, an extra dose of hope and help to you, okay? So please let, let uh, your friends and family know about that service. That's going to be Wednesday night, the 23rd, all right? Um, at this time, we'd like to invite our chairman of uh, the missions committee, Ronnie uh, Scheibler, to come. And he's going to give a brief interview to a couple of our missionaries, Kyle and Katie Brousseau. And they are bringing their lovely Christmas-dressed daughter, Audra. Normally, Blake, our missions pastor, would be up here, but uh, he is teaching Sunday school, so it's my uh, privilege to be able to uh, come up and uh, and talk with you and share with you with uh, Kyle and Kate and Audra. And um, it's been a, a blessing to me uh, to be able to be a part of their journey uh, these past six years as they have served um, with the International Mission Board uh, in South Asia. And so uh, we just have some questions um, that we're going to ask them so they can share with you um, 
what they've been doing, in case you didn't know, and that way you can be up to speed with, uh, with what's going on. So, um, so essentially, what was your main goal or objective uh, when you were in South Asia? Yeah, so these last few years uh, in South Asia, the main thing that we are always targeting was what we call CPM, so church planting movement. So not only that individual evangelism and not only planting you know, one church at a time, but we're going uh, for the purpose of training those, those local believers to plant churches that would then in and of themselves plant more churches. So that's what we're going for. And like we've had struggles here as far as churches and, and trying to get our missions um, program going and up going. I'm sure you guys have had struggles as well. So share with us one of your struggles that uh, you've had this year. Yeah, as you can probably imagine, it had to do with a pandemic. And so uh, one struggle that we had this year was just being in our city overseas and watching overnight everything get shut down. And so all of a sudden there was no more ministry, no more church, no more getting out of the house for any reason whatsoever. And so even um, after that, as we uh, made the decision to come home uh, back in April, it was really difficult to leave not knowing what would happen with our ministry partners, um, and then with the people that we were working with there. So that, that's been a struggle. And then just kind of being in limbo and transition um, since then. So that's the negative side of it, but there's yeah. positives too, right? Yeah. So, so share, a, share a story, if you would, on, on what's been good in South Asia. Yeah, so it really it's kind of the silver lining of the same, the same COVID issue. Uh, so a few weeks uh, before, well, I shouldn't say a few weeks before. I guess for the last couple of years, uh, there in the, the last city that we lived in, there in South Asia, the main thing that my partners and I were working on was training those up-and-coming uh, local church leaders to lead the new church plants in their urban uh, church planting network there in our city. So that's what we've been working on. But then, just as we were leaving uh, the country, like Kate said, this April, uh, what uh, my main pa uh, partner shared with me was that uh, they had just launched a totally digital, Zoom-based, what they're calling a Bible college. And so whereas before we were struggling to even uh, involve like 12 trainees in their uh, church network and training them up, you know, live, then in this Zoom-based digital training system that they developed, they're now having three meetings a week with at least 70 devices of trainees logged on to participate in this Bible training. And so that's just a huge praise that we have. So you're moving from there, and so tell us a little about what your new journey is going to be with the IMB. Yeah, so um, and this decision was unrelated to COVID, but um, during the summer we were asked to consider by our board um, changing roles and locations. And so um, after a prayer and wise counsel, we decided to accept roles on a media team in Europe. Um, I will be helping our missionaries in Europe develop uh, media uh, so they can um, plant churches, share the gospel, uh, train up-and-coming church leaders, and Kyle will be spearheading uh, digital theological education there in Europe as well. So that's what we will be doing as soon as we can get over there. I know we've had a chance to talk many times about how we can support you, and uh, we're still working toward that uh, as we go in your journey with you. Um, so let the rest of the church membership know what can we do to, to support you yeah. in your time, in your ministry. 
Yeah, sure. So the main thing we always say is you can pray for us and pray with us. And so I guess to be more specific right now, the main thing that, uh, that we're praying through and we'd like to ask you to pray for us in is the logistics of everything. So right now we're, like Kate, you know, like Kate mentioned, we're in transition. And so we're waiting on visas to where we can get to our country there in Europe. And so just pray that things would open up and that we could uh, get to where we believe the Lord's you know, leading us. Um, and then the second thing is, of course, uh, just given the season, you know, um, I would ask that you participate in our Lottie Moon Christmas offering, uh, because as you know, 100% of those gifts go to empowering and keeping missionaries like us uh, on the field. And so please do join us in that, in that effort. Do you, do you want to say anything? Yeah. Uh, thank you for praying for me. Uh, no. <laughs> um, Merry Christmas. Okay. Merry Christmas. Amen. Merry Christmas. And speaking of Merry Christmas, we are in week one of our Advent um, celebration. So you'll notice candle number one being lit here in just a moment. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But before we do, let's sing what I consider one of the best um, prophecy hymns on Christmas ever written. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Let's sing this together.
Advent reading, we'd like to welcome Jared and Jessica Fox to come and share with us. Matthew's genealogy is saturated with Old Testament history. It was critical for his original hearers to understand the Jewish lineage leading to Christ. Every detail in the Old Testament, even from the very beginning, Genesis 3.15, was pointing to a king who would come. History revolves around a king who would come, a king who now has come. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, is the king and center of it all. Today we light the first red candle to remind us of the coming of our great high priest and king, Jesus Christ. It is a candle of prophecy and it reminds us of God's promised savior. We read in uh, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And in Micah 5.2-4, it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Israel, from you shall come forth for me the one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when, he, when she who is in labor has given birth. And then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. In Isaiah 9, 6-7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And in Matthew 1.17, he tells us, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Yeah. Let's pray. Dear God, I just thank you um, for sending your Son, our Savior, the King of Kings, the Messiah. God, um, so comforting that even at the beginning of time, when all hope seemed lost, you had a plan mm -hmm. to send your son to come and live the perfect life, to be the perfect sacrifice, to die on the cross and be rose, raised from the dead so that we could have salvation. God, we praise you and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Zach and Cam and the orchestra and choir would like to share a song with you. Not a Christmas song per se, but it does allow us to shout together as a people uh, that Isaiah 9-7 passage where it talks about Jesus Christ reigning forever and ever. So there will be a point where we'll ask you to join with us.
has numbered every grain of sand. Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to
more praise. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Bow with me. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord, for you alone, for you. For you alone are worthy, Christ the Lord. Amen. Is there anyone here this morning who desires a righteous form of government? Do you? I know I do. Human depravity in every nation makes this an impossibility. Now, the king we were just singing about upon his throne certainly rules his people. That's us. Amen. But one of these days there will be an everlasting reign and God will reign forever in absolute justice and with righteousness. But as Andrew Davis points out in his commentary on Isaiah, he reminds us of the condition uh, of our world uh, through the ages regarding the ability uh, to govern. He says this, The pharaohs of Egypt enslaved people to build their pyramids. The Assyrians introduced new depths of human brutality in government, leaving piles of corpses behind them. The Greeks sought to spread the fruits of Greek wisdom, but their despotic kings left a trail of defilement in the pages of history. The Roman Empire brought stable government and a road system, uh, especially at the right time they had a road system, right? If you know the history of the coming of Christ. But it was propped up by the overwhelming power of their legions. Their barbarian hordes swept across Europe from the icy Northland and the steppes of Asia and put out the lights of culture and government for centuries to come. Even the divine right of kings that dominated in Christendom in Western Europe during the Middle Ages was a feudal system. But the government was only as good as the king's moral character. So revolution sought to break away from the monarchy and establish a government of the people. You ever heard this before? By the people and for the people. Yet in Abraham Lincoln's famous words, the government here has proven far from perfect, corrupted as it is by the sinful hearts of the people. In the 20th century, there was an experimentation, experiment with government forced sharing for the supposed benefit of the poor called communism. And it has proven to be a gross social, moral, economic failure all over the world. Representative democracy 
with all of its weakness and, and corruptions, is still, still remains today the best human, the best that human, the human race could ever develop. But as Winston Churchill said famously, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. All right? So our, our passage predicts a perfect ruler who will reign. Aren't you thankful for those words? And he will reign over a prosperous and peaceful realm. This ruler is the Son of God who became man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In shorthand, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 teaches us the condition of mankind, darkness. And it also teaches us the promise of deliverance. The king will give glorious light. It tells us the identity of the deliverer, a child born and a son given. And finally, it gives us a depiction of the glorious kingdom that will never end. Now, you have, you've had before you Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 read, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. But I need to set for you the context of Isaiah 9, 1 through 5. It's very important for us to know what's going on in the, in the backdrop of this incredible prophecy. A prophecy that some scholars believe is the most fantastic prophecy ever given in the Word of God concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in chapter 7 of Isaiah, it's really dark. And it's really gloomy. Ahaz, you know this guy, is a man of unbelief. And he exhibits not only unbelief, but arrogance and insolent unbelief. So the prophet will, in a sense, bypass the wickedness of Ahaz, and he will bring a wonderful promise to the people of God. But Ahaz, on the other hand, will get a word from the Lord that the nation is going into captivity under the Assyrians and is coming down the pipe. So there is, there is however, in chapter 7, a ray of hope. And we would say that the hope word is the term Emmanuel, God with us. As in chapter 7, verse 14 of Isaiah, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And then in chapter 8, verse 8. And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. O Emmanuel, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. And he goes on to speak of this nugget of hope. So the remnant will hear from the Lord. And the Lord is promising a coming Messiah. And the Messiah will be a sanctuary to the remnant. But we know what the Bible says. This Savior Messiah will actually be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to others. Now the question you might ask is, why, why is this such a hope to a remnant that will actually not see the promise fulfilled? It's a good question, isn't it? I mean, this is a predictive prophecy of the, of the Son of God coming to this earth. But what would it do to them? Well, again, it would be a sanctuary of hope. And actually, we'll read it in a little while. In Hebrews 11, the people of God waited for this promise. They were part of the kingdom of God. And they were steady in their faith, even though they had not yet received the promise. 
And this, ladies and gentlemen, is the promise of all promises. So, chapter 8 ends in the darkness and gloom of a corrupt and a wicked people. Just read through. They have occult wisdom. They're asking for occult wisdom from mediums. They've rejected the very wisdom of God. And the people were roaming about in the earth in angry despair. And they were literally cursing God. Their religious apostasy and idolatry has brought darkness on the land. And God's judgment will take place first as he sends the Assyrians. What do we know about that? Right on the hills of the Assyrians come. Y'all remember the book of Daniel? Who comes right after the Assyrians? The Babylonians. And then right after the Babylonians, you have the Medes and Persians. And then you have the Greeks. And then you have the actual empire ruling when Christ is born on earth, and that is the Romans. So think about this. From the time of this prophecy given to Isaiah and the fulfillment of that prophecy, you had a long extended time of judgment upon the face of the earth. 700 years before Jesus comes to this earth. So we get this sense of an elongated darkness and despair. But then we have this hope. Look how it's tied together. 8.22 says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Folks, you ever been in thick, thick darkness? You ever been deer hunting and lost in the woods? I have. It doesn't get any darker than that, especially when you don't know where you're going. Just, so the atmosphere is absolutely thick and gloomy. But check verse 9, verse 1. Let's say you don't know the rest of the story in 9, 2 through 7. Listen, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. Check this out. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So, now we have this elongated darkness, but yet we have this promise from the Lord that light is coming. Now I'll ask you a question. They, you, you deal with Zebulun and Naphtali. Why these two cities? Why does the word of God mention this particular area? Well first, it's the farthest north and they were actually the first to be attacked and they were the very first to experience what's called deportation. And that's what you see in the book of Daniel. And lastly, They were the first to have what's called Assyrian occupation. So you know what that means. The people of God were infiltrated by the dog goim Gentiles. That's what they felt about Gentiles because the special superior race was the Hebrews, right? We've got a monopoly on God. And so notice that it was God who had treated them with contempt. Did y'all read that in verse 1? Who brought about this contempt upon the nation. 
it was the Lord God. But that would not last forever. God's contempt upon them did bring gloom and anguish upon them. He literally turned the lights out on these people. Yet, God says something's going to happen. Now think of this. 700 years is a long time to be in anguish. That's more than double the existence of the United States of America. So consider that. Almost triple. 700 years of this anguish. And notice, does the Lord God make Jerusalem glorious or even Samaria for the light? Where does he go? He goes to Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, if you were living in captivity for 700 years, what would you look for? You would look for a king riding on a stallion, welding a sword, and wiping out every Gentile that existed. Assyrians, Babylonians, Medes and Persians, Greeks, Romans, whoever was living in that day bringing you under subjection. But when God intervenes and turns the light on, He does it first in a predominantly Gentile area. God's purpose, ladies and gentlemen, was not strictly Jewish. Are you all tracking with me? God's purpose has always been from the very beginning when he called Abraham a global purpose. God's call to ethnic Israel was a means to an end. What was the promise that the very first Hebrew ever got? Y'all do know who the very first Hebrew was, right? What's his name? Abraham, what was the promise? Through your seed, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. Had the people gotten off track? You better believe it. Do Americans get off track? Do Christians get off track? And wondering and thinking about what is most important? Well, the Lord would not come with spiked boots on to stomp on the Gentiles and establish the Hebrews as the superior race. The Bible teaches that God had a plan from the beginning to save the nations through the Lord Jesus Christ. You ought to be thankful for this, lest you would not be sitting in your seat. Aren't you thankful that God Almighty had this plan? So the line of division between the Jew and the Gentile is broken down. So that in Christ the Lord, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. When the Lord speaks of the area in which he would come, he speaks of the area hit hardest by the Assyrians. Now it is filled at that particular time with Gentile dogs, goim, that's what they called them. But God will break through with light to the Gentiles. Now that's the backdrop of Isaiah chapter 9. Now I want you to see three things this morning. Are you ready? This means yes, this means no. Are you ready? The Lord will give light in the midst of darkness. And that's what you see in verses 2 through 5. And then we're going to see the Lord himself will come to deliver his people. So we're going to see the identification of the deliverer, a child born, son given, a king with four names, right? We're going to see that. And then finally, we'll talk about the rule and reign of the king, and this rule or reign will absolutely never end. So you notice there's a shift when you get to verse 2. And your copy of the Word of God should note this, either by italics or a change of font, because this is... It's designed to be in a poetic form. It's given in a kind of a chiastic structure in the Word of God. Notice, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. So, I told you, the atmosphere. Think about being in captivity and darkness for that amount of time. And the atmosphere of the land of paganism would have been incredible. So, externally... 
we would say, yes, there was darkness. There is, however, more to the darkness than just the fact that they're living in a land filled with pagans. There is an internal darkness. Is there not? There is a pervasive internal darkness because of what's called sin and arrogance and ignorance. There are, they are in a, they're in distress. They're in misery. We all experience this. Without the light of Christ and the glorious gospel shining into us, we are all in absolute darkness. This is not brought about simply by the Assyrians. It's not about, brought about simply by the Babylonians or the Greeks. It's brought about by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Is anybody getting this? Do I need to start back over? Right? Do you see what's going on here? It's, it's deeper than just external darkness. We're talking about internal darkness. Paul will say in Ephesians 4 that we were, when we were without Christ, we were darkened in our minds and we had no knowledge whatsoever of the things of God. That's the human condition. I want to remind you that there's only one God that can turn on the light. And this text, the sermon is about the glorious light of the king. And in 2 Corinthians 4, we understand that Paul will take the creation narrative. When God said, let there be light. And he will bring it over in 2 Corinthians 4. And he will say to us, just as God said, let there be light. He's the same God that speaks the gospel of light into your heart and mind. And gives you an understanding of the gospel. Actually, the gospel works like creation. You're in darkness, and God says, let there be light, and there's light. Hallelujah. Those who, are, who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in darkness will have a light shine on them. Don't, aren't you thankful that we have the benefit of the New Testament? Because we have to ask the question, when did this take place? When did the light shine? Well, I'm glad you asked. Take your copy of God's Word. Matthew chapter 4 tells us exactly when this took place. With stunning accuracy. Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to get you to turn numerous times during this sermon, so don't put your Bibles away. Okay? Chapter 4, beginning in verse 12 of the Gospel of Matthew. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee... And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, you ever read that before? Right? Might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Verse 17 is key. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you get the picture? 700 years of darkness and turmoil, external and internal. And this region had been the most inhabited by Gentiles. And it ends up being the very place that God sent sends forth his light first. And when does the light start? It's at the beginning of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And suddenly, right in that area, full of Gentiles, God says, let there be light. And the light dawned on them. This is nothing less than the light of the glory of God in the face 
of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. So Jesus came with perfect teaching. He came with signs and wonders. He brings light into the darkness of the Gentile world right there in Galilee. What did Jesus call himself? I am the light of the world. So he revealed himself first in the synagogue in Galilee saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And look, it wasn't just that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him because he's God, but he actually says that he will recover the sight for the blind. It says in the Word of God that he will release prisoners. And guess what that is the fulfillment of? Isaiah 61. So in the midst of the darkness of Isaiah's day, the remnant held to this hope. The ones who died with this hope in them were the ones who belonged to the kingdom of God. Now check this out. You're the, the people living in, say, 28 AD. They're the ones that actually received the promise. But what about the ones who got the promise given to them? Well, again, I want to remind you of, of, of Hebrews. Just so we know how the word of God works. Chapter 11, verse 39. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. You understand that the remnant that really belonged to God held on to this incredible prophecy that God Almighty would send light in the midst of darkness. What a wonderful understanding of the Word of God. So, the next verse helps bring focus to God's eternal purpose. Check it out. You may have no idea what this means, but this is, I'm going to tell you. You have multiplied the nation. Verse 3. You have increased its joy. They recognize, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. What is going on in those words? He doesn't multiply the nation by making more ethnic Israelites, does he? He will increase the true nation of God through the preaching of the gospel. That's what this means. God is going to multiply the nations. You do understand that not all Israel is Israel. Circumcision of the flesh alone does not make you a child of God. You've got to have circumcision of the heart. And so, what is the Bible speaking of? It's speaking of the true nation of God. It's speaking of the true Israel of God. Let me show you right from the book of Isaiah, chapter 54. Look at this, beginning in verse 1. Isaiah 54, verse 1. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. All right, here is a mother who's not going to bear anymore. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. So we're not talking about Israel uh, in labor, in travail, to bring about more offspring ethnically. Here's what we are talking about. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who was married, says the Lord. There's going to be an increase of people who actually belong to the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your inhabitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords, and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread. What is this talking about? It's talking about the enlargement of a tent or a tabernacle. How many of you know that this was the text that the first Baptist missionary, the father of modern, actually the father of modern missions, the very first text he preached before he went to India was this text. Should that touch your heart? What was his name? William Carey. 
And he says, you know what, God? You have people in India that you're going to save. And the tent is going to be enlarged. I woke some of you sleepers up, did I not? There's a reason for vocal variation, right? It's to wake up dead Baptists that are sleeping during the service, okay? So look, y'all understand the multiplication of the nation, the broadening out of the tent pegs of David's tent is to bring in the nations, us, right? That's what this is about. And he knew full well. So they come in by, not by uh, Israel mother and travel having more offspring. They come in by adoption, right? Have we talked about that in Ephesians 1? Yes, they come in by adoption. So a true Jew is not one who is circumcised in the flesh, but in the heart. And if you have faith in Jesus Christ, then you are of the seed of Abraham. You know the song, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons has Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Yeah, good job, Slate. I should have had you come up front and do that for us. So, interesting text of Scripture. You may not remember this in our study in the book of Acts. But in Acts chapter 15, James at the Jerusalem Council believed that this was what was being fulfilled. Listen to what he says. And with these words of the prophet agree, just as is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles, hallelujah, who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. What happens? What happens when the people of God start coming into the fold? This text says there's going to be some rejoicing going on. Have you ever just read a cursory read to the book of Acts and underlined expressions like joy and gladness? Why? Because the gospel was going to the ends of the earth. From Jerusalem to Samaria to Judea to the uttermost parts of the world. And there was gladness and there was joy and there was victory because God was saving souls. Now the Bible says this joy is likened to the day of Midian's defeat. Anybody notice that? Now what in the world does Midian have to do with a prophecy coming in the future of the great king coming? Does anybody know the story of Midian? It's found in Judges chapter 6 verse 7. And there's this awesome military guy who is savvy and strong. His name was Gideon. I'm being funny, right? So at this time, God would deliver his people with 300 men. With a scant light under a bushel. Oh, does that have something to do with light? And this light breaks. And what happens to the Midianites? They implode upon one another. And there is great victory among the people. The evil forces of Midian turned on themselves, imploded, destroying one another. And as a result, the oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of the oppressor, was shattered. All the trampling boots and bloody garments were destined to the fire. Now, I hope you realize that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has defeated Satan's seemingly unbreakable yoke of sin and slavery. Do y'all realize that? Do you realize that Satan's dark kingdom has been routed by implosion? 
And we who were once enslaved to Satan through fear of death. Hebrews 2 says we've been released to serve God with joy. Wow. So the enemy lost. And the Son of God gets the spoils of war. And guess who the spoils are? You and me. We are the spoils of war. Let me show you. Colossians chapter 2. The Bible says this. Beginning in verse 14. Let's back up to 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by counseling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Listen to this. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame. Does that sound like something God did at Midian? Through Gideon, by triumphing over them in him. Now, many scholars have seen two things going on in this text. One is called a greater exodus. Now, can you think of anything greater than the exodus in the book of Exodus when you were an Israelite and you were able to look back and see the waters parted? Or Furthermore, it parted right in front of you. And you actually walked across it, a million and a half people, on dry ground. And then to look back and see all the waters come down upon the Egyptian army and they're gone. On a scale of 1 to 10, that's 10 plus when it comes to a greater or when it comes to a redemption. However, do you realize that what Jesus Christ did on the hill of Calvary was a greater redemption? It was a greater deliverance. So many scholars have called uh, the gospel and Christ and the redemption the greater exodus. However, others have also called it, called Jesus the greater Gideon. Why is that? Well, the new redemptive act of God, the ultimate exodus, is the new covenant in Christ's blood. It's a grand and glorious redemption. Amen? The hero at Midian was a small means to accomplish such a large end. So when this light comes with deliverance of an exodus-type proportion, it will be in small ways of deliverance from the Midians through Gideon. That's the way it will look. How much smaller can you get than a baby born in a manger? What you are looking at is you're looking at the ways of God, which are not our ways. And God Almighty would do it through a greater exodus, and he would do it through a greater Gideon, and please note that God's purposes in this world is expanding, and men and devils cannot stop it. God gives light into this world. Aren't you thankful? He's going to accomplish his purpose, folks. You don't have to fret or be in despair. If you belong to the Lord God Almighty, you don't have to worry about who holds the future. You don't have to. Why? Because God will accomplish his purposes. He has a perfect track record. Just as he said that the Son of God would be born in Bethlehem, just as he said he would go to Galilee of the nations, that's exactly what the Son of God did. He did exactly what God said he would do. So second, the Lord will come to deliver his people. Chapter 9, verse 6. Now, before we say, uh, for to us a child is born, what would you be looking for if you've heard the first verses 2 through 5, and you get to verse 6, you'd say, all righty then, white horse, stallion, king, on a horse, 
wipe out everybody, conquer everybody. And then the Bible says, for unto us a child is born. In the Hebrew mind, wow, that's kind of a letdown. The surprising conqueror who works the stunning victory of verses 1 through 5 is revealed as a child born and a son giving. Now, folks, listen. This is the essence of Christmas, lest you've forgotten that. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. Dr. Aiken once said in chapel, what, what, if an, what if aliens existed? And one of them came to the United States of America around Christmas time. What would they think Christmas is about? I mean, they don't exist, of course. But, but what if? What would they think your family thought Christmas meant? Folks, I hope you understand that this is the essence of Christmas. The child is born and a son is given. This is actually the essence of the incarnation, not Christmas, right? Christmas, that's the name we put on it. But in reality, he wasn't born on the 25th of December. More than likely, that's not the date he was born. Here's the deal. He came down from heaven, right? It is the enfleshment of the Son of God. He shall dwell with his people, taking on human flesh. And so, here's the true essence. It is the incarnation of the Son of God. Is this the only text in the Bible that gives us a portrait of Christ in the Old Testament? In other words, was Jesus Christ in the Old Testament? You better believe it. He is the story of the Old Testament. All the way through, right? He is. And this is one of the climactic uh, prophecies given of Jesus. But take this and record it. In Genesis 12, 3, he's the offspring, excuse me. In Genesis 3, 15, he is the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 13, he is the very offspring of Abraham. In Genesis 49, 10, he is the tribe of Judah. In Numbers 24, 17, he is the star that comes out of Jacob. In Deuteronomy 18, 15, he is the prophet that is greater than Moses. In 2 Samuel 2, 2 Samuel 7, 12, he is the son of David who will reign forever. In Psalm 2, he is the Lord's anointed. In Psalm 22, he is the Lord's righteous sufferer. In Psalm 110, he's the king priest after the order of Melchizedek. In Isaiah 7, 14, he is the virgin born son of God, ancient of days. In Daniel 7, he is the coming son of God. In Micah 5, 2, he is the ancient of days born in Bethlehem. In Isaiah 9, he is the child born and the son who is given. The Old Testament paints the picture of who the son of God actually is. The Bible says a child is born. Only human beings are born, folks. Unless y'all hadn't figured that out. The Bible says in Isaiah 7, 14, a virgin shall be with child. What does this speak of? It speaks of the humanity of the Son of God. Hebrews 2 would remind us that it was by necessity that the Son of God must put on human flesh. Why? So that he could die. So he could live perfectly in obedience to the law of God and that he could take that perfect body to the tree of Calvary and die. So this speaks of the humanity of the Son of God. Child born. Humanity. 100%. But there's a shift in the language at this point, And it says he is the son that is given. What does that speak of? Humanity. 
child born? Come on. Deity, son, given. Right? We shift here. Galatians 4, 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth. It doesn't say God created. God sent forth his son. Born of a virgin. Born under the law that he might redeem those who are under the law. God sent forth his son. It's a clear statement of the fact that the son of God pre-existed with his father before he was sent into this world. Can you praise God for that? It is the majesty and glory of the coming of the Son of God into this world. And then the Bible says the government will rest upon his shoulders. This king, that is a child-born son given, will also be a ruler. No one will ever vote him in, and no one will ever vote him out. He is an absolute ruler. The Bible says on the shoulders of this child is laid the weight of the government of the people. He is the answer to the quest for a perfect and lasting government. The kingdom will be squarely on the shoulders of this child born, this son given. His shoulders can bear that weight. His shoulders will not buckle. He carries it forth. What does Jesus say just before he ascends into heaven? All authority has been given to me. Not some, not partial. Do you get that? All authority has been given to Jesus Christ. And of course, then he gives that magnificent mission, that magnificent uh, call upon the people of God to make disciples. Why can he do that? Because our Lord has all authority. He has sovereign leadership. The text also gives us, this, says that this king has four names. Actually, they're all names, titles given to God. There's really eight of them. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty, God, right? Uh, Eternal, Father, Prince of Peace. And so these names are given to the Lord. The first is Wonderful Counselor. This child born, this son given, has four names. He is the Wonderful Counselor. Does anybody remember Manoah? We think about where this word were wonderful. If we say these are titles of deity, is there ever a time when God is called wonderful? Well, I'm glad you asked, right? Do y'all remember Manoah? Y'all have a blank look on your face. Manoah. Well, Manoah was living in the time of the judges, and he's married to a woman who is barren. And the angel of the Lord appears to Manoah's wife, and he says, you're going to have a son, and you're barren. And then she goes and tells Manoah, and Manoah's like, wow, if this angel comes back again, I'd really like to see it. I'd like to see this angel. So guess what happens? Angel comes back again, angel of the Lord. She sees it. She says, hey, can you hold here just for a moment? I'm paraphrasing. Got somebody that wants to see you. Manoah sees the angel of the Lord. But here's the deal. The angel of the Lord tells them, you are going to bear a son. His name is Samson. Okay? Manoah's the father of Samson. For some of you who were not quite with the program in the Old Testament. But here's the deal. The angel of the Lord is questioned by Manoah and his wife. And they say, who are you? And the phenomenal thing here is that the angel says, why should I tell you my name? It is indeed wonderful. Isn't that awesome? So I believe that this was a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ who comes to Manoah and they recognize that his name is wonderful. Second, he's called counselor. Look what it says in Isaiah 11 regarding the counsel of the Lord. Chapter 11, verse 1, 
There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, and the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Wow. The Spirit of counsel and might. How is Jesus Christ revealed in the New Testament? He is the one who has all wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2. He is the one who gives wondrous counsel and unfailing wisdom. I want to tell you this morning that Jesus Christ is the only one that can give you the counsel to soothe your conscience. He's a wonder of a counselor. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He's the only wise counselor who can solve your confusion. He is the mighty God, the text says. The translation is El Gabor. He is, he is mighty God. Most people will tell you, scholars, that the word means heroic king. So this has something to do with heroism. Heroism. Is this not a wonderful insight into the character and activity of God? This is an affirmation of his deity as well because you don't put the term El with anything unless it's God. Okay? So he is God in the flesh. But think about this. Isaiah 10.21, right? It says that the remnant will return to El Gabor, the mighty God. This is, this is the term for the God you serve. Jesus Christ is the mighty God. The remnant will return. This only hero God would fight a battle for us on the field of Calvary. And he would face all the forces of Satan and sin. And our God would conquer hell, sin, and the grave. He is the mighty God. And when all the dust settles, an empty tomb forever stands as a monument that our king is the victor. The only way that they could stamp out Christianity is to put Jesus Christ back into the tomb. And that ain't going to happen. Amen? He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the mighty God. That terminology of hero also throws into the aspects of God likes to do things for the flair of his name. He's the God of the two-minute warning. You think he's not going to come through, but he does so. And you know why he does it and waits so late to do it? So that he himself will get more glory out of it. He's the hero God, the mighty God. The text says he's also the eternal Father. Now, does this puzzle anybody? Because you know the triune God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Yet here in this text, the child born, the son given, has the name or a title of everlasting or eternal Father. What does that actually mean and why is it given in this particular way? And we may say, well, that's one of the puzzles of the Bible. Well, I've learned something. When you try to put all the puzzles of the Bible together, you end up with other puzzles that you can't put together. All right? Have you been there? But Isaiah chapter 8 helps us a little bit. Verse 18. I'm going to read fast. You listen. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And then Isaiah 53 verse 10. Just stay where you are and listen to this one. 53 verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. 
So when it says that Jesus is the eternal father, what it means is that Jesus is a father in the sense that he will have offspring. And ladies and gentlemen, unless you hadn't figured this out, that's you and me. This offspring would be given to him, just like it says in Isaiah chapter 8. So the father addresses the spiritual seed. Jesus Christ will give life to his offspring and save people from their sins. So a deeper theological question would be then, when was the Messiah's children given to him? It's kind of quiet in here. I believe it was in eternity past through the covenant of redemption. Folks, it says he's the eternal father. That means there's never a time when he hasn't been the father of the offspring. Hello, Tokyo. Are y'all awake out there? He is the eternal father. That means he has eternal offspring. So it is my particular belief, and you can take up a fight with me on that, but I think I might win that argument from the scripture. But the fact of the matter is, I believe it was given to him in the, in the covenant of redemption before the foundation of the world. But here is a child who is also a father. Aren't y'all thankful for that? He is fatherly in his love and his care. He's fatherly in his goodness and compassion. This is the character of the Son of God. He's your provider, protector. He is one who will be that forever. And then the text says he's the Prince of Peace. Isaiah sees him as the Sar Shalom, the one who gives universal peace, peace between God and man. If you're saved today, you have that. Romans chapter 5. Since we have therefore peace with God, we have been justified before him, we have peace with God. Do y'all know that today? That you have peace with God? But how about peace with man with man? Right? In our world, all we, everybody talks about critical race theory and social justice. The only God, the only way possible for that to take place with man to man is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the answer. The answer is the gospel of the king. So we can have peace with God, we can have peace with one another, but how about the peace of God in your life? You know, that, that has a lot to do with whether you're walking with God as a Christian or not. Some of you are in here today, and you don't sense that peace with God because you're estranged, and you're so far away from the Lord that you don't even sense the peace of God in your life. But the Bible says that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's the Prince of Peace. God with man, man with one another, and the inward peace that only God can give you. John 14, 27. Don't you love the words? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you do I give to you. And then he says, let not your heart be troubled. Neither be afraid. Folks, you get it? Jesus Christ is the embodiment of peace. He is. Verse 7 says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And I hope you have peace with God this morning. And it's only possible... Through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. All right, we've, we've got to the final point. Are y'all ready? Been a long way, right? Thank you for listening. This is so rich and so good for our church to hear. Finally, the Lord will rule and reign forever. Do you see it in verse 7 of Isaiah 9? Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And check this out on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. Note this with righteousness. And with justice and with righteousness. Anybody long for that day? Now, folks, he reigns that way over his people. 
He already reigns that way with his people. But one of these days in the future, in the consummation of the age, that's going to be the characteristics of the kingdom. Justice and with righteousness. Notice the text. When did Jesus start reigning? Are we looking for some Jewish city where he's going to reign sometime down the line? What does it say? From, check it out, this time forth and forever more. When Jesus condescended from heaven and was born in Bethlehem, that is the kingdom that began that will have no end. It's forever and ever. And note this, great words. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Listen to that promise. What he promises he will fulfill. What he says he will do. Where does this go back to? The throne of David all the way to 2 Samuel 7. When he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, speaking to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And he will establish the kingdom. He will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Listen to Luke chapter 1 verse 32. Very similar words that are given to us when Christ is born in Bethlehem. The angels are saying this. Listen. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So, his kingdom is established by the gospel. It's established through the gospel of peace. And his government increases, conquering his enemies. And how does he do this? He does it through a sword. But it's the sword of the Spirit. Are y'all listening? This government, this peace, this universal peace is going to happen as the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed all over the world. So he will not only rule and reign in that sense, but he'll also reign completely. The government will be on his shoulders and no other. He will rule eternally. How, how should we view this statement with justice and righteousness? I think the first thing that comes to my mind is the social uh, uprightness and conformity to the law of God. Justice, right? That we conform to the law of God. And certainly this kingdom will be a reflection of the character of the Son of God. In Hebrews 1, 8 through 9, it says, Your throne, O God, is forever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. So we can say that in the sense that there will be justice and righteousness in the land. But folks, I want to remind you that's not the way that Isaiah deals with them. When you read the book of Isaiah, you actually find out that the emphasis here on justice and righteousness is in direct connection to the gospel. Jesus Christ will rule with justice and righteousness. How will he do this? Well, according to the Bible, the Messiah will redeem Zion and he does it in righteousness. He upholds the glory of God. How can God, who is absolutely righteous and perfect, forgive sinful men and still remain just? The only way you can do that is through the justifier, Jesus Christ. So when it says that he will rule in justice and righteousness, we're talking about the fact that Jesus Christ will fulfill the law completely and perfectly. And then he will lay down his life, the perfect righteous one, so that his people can have righteousness. He will rule with justice and righteousness. And what does it say when you get over to Romans chapter 1? Here's what the Bible says regarding the gospel. Romans 1 verse 16 If I can get there in the pages of Scripture, the Bible says, 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. Well when will this start? Right now. We're already in the rule of the Son of God. He's doing it through righteousness and justice. He's doing it through people coming to know Jesus. And when did this government begin? It began at the coming of the Messiah. And folks, listen, it will never have an end. So in conclusion, my prayer is that you by faith understand that the victory has been won over sin and death by Christ Jesus the Lord. That's our prayer. When it says the rod, broken, when it says the oppressor, Folks, there's no more oppressive thing than sin and death. No more oppressive thing. And if you die in your sin, then you will die and be separated from God eternally in a place called hell. That's what the Word of God teaches. Period. So in other words, if you deny the existence of hell, then you deny the accuracy and authority of the Bible. However, there is a provision for your biggest need. Your need is to be saved by grace through faith, and God Almighty has accomplished that, right? The Lord has accomplished it. Our Lord did it on his own so that he alone receives the glory. I hope that you rejoice in what Christ has given to you in the gospel. W.A. Criswell once said, The shoulders that bear the government of the universe are the shoulders that bore the cross of Calvary. Do you know that reality in your own life? What should be our response? Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift of salvation. Why don't you meditate on these divine titles during Christmas? Is that not a good application? We need a wonderful counselor in the midst of COVID. Our government leaders need it, right? Our president needs it. And whatever incoming administration we have, they all need a wonderful counselor. How about thinking about the mighty God that he is, that he delivers his people What about the everlasting Father in protection? What about the Prince of Peace? We ought to worship him for that. And listen, here's the final thing. By all means, if he is the king of your life, then obey him. You call him your ruler, and he shall reign forevermore. He's on his throne. We sang that, behold your God who is on his throne, right? If he is in fact your ruler, then obey him. And here's the final thing. Share the gospel, right? Share the gospel. Why? Because God has already told you that he himself will multiply the nation. That he himself will bring in his people. And Jesus said, the end shall not come. Will not come until the nations. Until they hear the gospel. So that means to me, when the last person that Jesus desires to come to the gospel of Christ, this side of heaven, then uh, he's going to toot and we're going to scoot. It's all going to be over. Right? Right? The Bible says it. The Lord shall ascend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Coming in the future. Amen. Now, I bet you never thought you would grind through Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But listen, you need to hear this. Are y'all listening? Our church family needs to hear what the Word of God says and understand and know the beauty and glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, one thing I need to ask for your help. In the month of December, we are ministering to 20 families uh, that we have learned through the clothing ministry. Usually the least of these we work with to supply Christmas for families that need help. 
This year we were able to pinpoint 20 families out of our clothing ministry that need help. Okay? So I'm asking you for some money. You know you've got it. All right? Uh, Natalie and I have already given $100 toward this. Basically, I need 20 families to give 100 bucks. Okay? If we get more than that, that's fine. But we're going to bring those families to our church on December 19th. We're going to serve them breakfast. We're going to give their, them and their children Christmas gifts for Christmas. Those 20 families. So, what a wonderful, worthy cause. And so, if you'd like to commit to that, please do so. All right? Merry Christmas. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Amen. All right, Brother David. Hey, don't forget your cup, by the way. You, you may not have ever been given anything from the IMB, but here's a coffee cup, right? Amen. No, we love the IMB. Praise the Lord. Hey, let's stand and sing this as we depart. Who has felt the nails upon his hand? Who has felt the nails upon his hand? Bearing all the guilt of sinful man. God eternal, humble to the grave. Jesus, Savior, risen now to reign. Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our King, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore. Have a great week.